0: The vision of Obadiah. Sorry, I need these. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent out among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the cliffs of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you've been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow And shall be as though they had never been But in Mount Zion There shall be those who escape And it shall be holy And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions The house of Jacob shall be a fire The house of Joseph a flame And the house of Esau stubble They shall burn them and consume them And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau For the Lord has spoken Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem, who are on Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Paul. Just to say, if you do have a small baby or a small child, we do have a cry room here as you go out that back door, and uh, please slip out with your little one. It'll be a great help to me and to all of us. There is AV, so you can watch and hear the sermon in comfort. If you're a nursing mother, we have a nursing mother's room in the library in the A block, and do check your cell phone. Just quickly have a look at your cell phone. See that it is on silent. I'm going to ask you to stand and I'm going to pray and then we'll come to God's Word. Can you please stand? Father, the Bible says that your Word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. Some of us, Lord, have been lurking in the shadows, some of us have been living in the darkness. We pray that your word and your Holy Spirit may pierce our minds and hearts and bring us back to yourself. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The key verse in Obadiah must be verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. That is God's irony, where God judges people by their own sin. Now, most of you will know the name Watergate and Richard Nixon. What most of you don't know is that Richard Nixon had to reap what he had sown. He was a very proud and deceitful politician. Nothing new under the sun. And um, in his pride, he wanted to become the most famous American president, and so he secretly, to 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 uh, to establish his legacy, he secretly recorded all the conversations he had in the Oval Office for his legacy. And ironically, it was precisely those recordings which proved his deceit in the Watergate scandal. And he had to resign in disgrace. Poetic justice. God judges people very often by their own sins. Now, we'll come back to that. Let's enter Obadiah's world. Verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Now, we know nothing about Obadiah. It was a common Jewish name. There is a number of people in the Old Testament called Obadiah. The word means servant of Yahweh. Again, verse 1, it was not a vision or message for the nation of Israel. Notice, it was for the Edomites. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Edom was another country, another nation. And the Jewish prophet Obadiah, God has sent him to give a prophecy, a message, to the Edomites. The date of writing, we don't know the exact date, but it was somewhere between 586 B.C. Think of that, 586 before the birth of Christ, and 553 B.C. 586, the Babylonians attacked, defeated, destroyed Jerusalem, and took the Israelites into slavery, into exile. 553 B.C., the same Babylonians destroyed Edom. Let's put up the map, maps. Let's hit the hit the the uh, house lights. Now I don't have my pointer, which gave up the ghost on Friday. But you'll notice there, Israel. You'll see Jerusalem on the left is the Mediterranean, and uh, so there's Israel, there's Judah, and then there's the kingdom of Edom. Edom. So they are at the south of the Red Sea, they are neighbors of Judah. So it's important that we understand the geography and we'll get to that later. Next slide, you'll see the Babylonian Empire. So there's the Mediterranean Sea, there's Egypt, there's Israel, and the yellow portion is the Babylonian Empire. And they had defeated the Assyrians and their headquarters for a time was up in Nineveh, right up Up at the top. And in 586, the Babylonians came south and defeated Israel and Judah and destroyed Jerusalem. And then in 553, the same Babylonians came and they destroyed the Edomites. So that's the background, that's the history. Um, Let's have the lights on. You can check that up in Google, or perhaps you've got a Bible map and you can have a look at that. In your own time, when the Israelites were defeated by the Babylonians, five eighty six BC, they, the the Israelites, lost everything. Some of their people were killed. They lost their land. They lost their temple. They lost their capital city, Jerusalem. They lost their priesthood. Um, they lost their country, and they were deported from Judah up north, and found themselves as slaves in a foreign land, Babylon. And to add insult to injury, their ancient rivals, the Edomites, actually relatives, rejoiced over their destruction. Have a look, verse 10. Verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, yeah Obadiah is speaking to the Edomites. Because of the violence done by the Babylonians to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So when he refers to Jacob, he's referring to the Israelites who were being defeated by the Babylonians. Think Russia, Ukraine, Russia being Babylon. Think that. That is what is happening here. And yet, verse 11, though you having this this unbelievably savage... Um, destruction of the nation of Judah um, verse 11 the Edomites the relatives of Israel didn't help on the day that you stood aloof on that day you stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem you were like one of them. So notice the end of verse 11 the Edomites not only stood aloof but they but they joined the Babylonians. You were like one of them. Verse 12. But do not gloat over the day of your brother, in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah, in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. So yeah, you have the Edomites, their... The, the, Their relative, the Israelites from Judah, were being slaughtered, were being taken into slavery. And what were they doing? They were standing at first on the sidelines, gloating over their destruction. They cheered their defeat. They danced on their graves. Imagine someone dancing on your grandmother's grave whilst insulting her at the same time. That's verse 12. Verse 13 do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his, his disaster in, in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. So they not only gloated, but they were looting. Imagine your loved one has just died, and their relatives starting to talk about taking furniture, or the fridge, or clothes. And you're still grieving your loved one. They're looting. That's verse 13. Verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So some of the Israelites who had escaped the Babylonian soldiers were captured by the Edomites, who then handed them over back to the Babylonians for slaughter or slavery. Think of World War Two, where some German Jews escaped Germany into France, only to be handed back by French Nazi supporters back to the Nazis in Germany's destination gas chambers. That's verse 14. Well, you can imagine... The reaction of Eden so angered God that he sent Obadiah as a Jewish prophet to proclaim judgment against Edom. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Eden. There's judgment. Verse 2, behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. Verse 4, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Verse 6, referring to the Edomites, how Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sought out. Verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. It's pretty morbid stuff, isn't it? Enough to spoil a perfectly good Sunday. But that's the background, that's the context, that's the bad news. We will get to the good news a little bit later on in the closing verses. So let's now unpack this passage. You understand the context, the geography, the history. Let's now unpack this passage to see what it says to us living in South Africa 2023. It's the shortest, one of the shortest books in the Bible. Three principles that will help us as we unpack this passage. We're going to have a look at Edom's sins, secondly, God's judgment, and thirdly, the big picture. So let's dig in straight away. First of all, Edom's sins, and there are two of them. First of all, their pride, verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the cliffs of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now it's helpful to know the geography of Palestine when we read this. Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem, Jerusalem is on Mount Zion. Jerusalem is Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the altitude is eight hundred meters. The altitude of Mount Hor, H O R, in Edom, was one thousand five hundred meters. So the Edomites lived and looked down on all the nations around them. They lived in the cliffs and the heights. They enjoyed political economic security. They were unapproachable by their enemies because of the heights. It was an impenetrable region because of the passes and the mountains. Verse 3, you who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Think of Switzerland, secure in the mountains, the Alps. Here is Edom, symbolized. Her heart is symbolized by her geography. High and hard, certain and proud. So he has a nation, he has a tribe, he has a person who feels so strong, so self sufficient. The self made, think about this the self made man who worships his creator, the self made woman who worships her maker. Notice verse 3 their pride deceived them. So they arrogantly surveyed all the nations below them, surrounding countries. And yet they couldn't see their own hearts. Their pride blinded them. Their pride deluded them. It always does. For over 40 years, the Nationalist Party thought that they were impenetrable. Only a few years after 1994, they didn't exist anymore. They were gone. On September 5, 1934, in Nuremberg, Adolf Hitler, the leader of the Nazi party, declared that the Nazi Reich, the Nazi empire, would reign for a thousand years. September 5, 1934, 11 years later, he committed suicide and the Nazi party was defeated. You reap what you sow. Retributive irony. At the heart of sin, my dear friends, is pride. Of course, lying, stealing, adultery, those are sins. They are serious sins. They have serious consequences. But at the very heart of it is pride. It's arrogance against God. It's the source of the fall in Genesis 3. Did God really say... Surely not. Surely you can't expect us to obey him and do what he says. Surely we can do as we please. Surely we can make our own rules. What is that? That is pride. Pride is at the first words, the public words of Jesus in Mark's gospel. The first public words of Jesus in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1 verse 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. How do we know that that the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, the king is here, King Jesus. And then he says, repent. What must we repent of? We must repent of trying to be the king ourselves. The real king has arrived, so you better get off your throne. You're not the king. You're not the king of the castle. It's the pride that says, I'm all right, Jack. I don't really need God. I've got enough investments, despite the... 50 basis points on Thursday. I've got enough investments. I've got enough properties. I've got enough offshore accounts to be comfortable and safe and secure. I can buy whatever freedom I want. I can buy whatever pleasure I want. Or perhaps it's it's the security of your status or your accomplishments or the security of your body or your family or your name or your tribe. My dear friends, that's just an extension of your pride. It's my ability. It's my ingenuity. Here's the question. What thing, what person gives you ultimate peace, ultimate security? What thing, what person gives you ultimate security? If it's not God, it's idolatry, it's pride. The two always go together. Always. And you and I need to know that God hates pride. There's nothing soft here. God hates pride. And God will destroy pride, whether you believe in Him or not. Jesus told a parable in Luke 12. I've paraphrased it just a little bit. But let me tell you His parable in Luke 12. There's a wealthy man, he's just retired on his estate in Dulstroom. He loves fly fishing. As he sits on his patio overlooking the gorgeous rolling hills on his farm, and there's a river running through it. All this property, these beautiful hills, this estate. His wife joins him to have a cocktail on the patio. She's just parked the Porsche in their six car garage. And he says, honey, he says, honey, you know, We really need some more offshore investments because this year has been unbelievable. The dividends have just rolled in. We need more offshore investments. And as she turns to hug him, he gasps, he clutches his chest. And five minutes later, he's dead of a heart attack. And God says, you fool. This night your soul is required of you. I cannot think of more frightening words, more frightening words than the God of heaven and earth, the judge of all men, looking me in the eye and saying, Martin, you fool. Imagine. Here's the irony. If you never struggle with your ego or pride you're in real danger of becoming an Edomite. If you do struggle with your ego and pride, chances are you're on safer ground. That's the irony. Second sin. First sin is their pride. Second sin is their contempt for God's people. Have a look at verse 9. Hard words, strong words. Verse 9. So that every man from Mount Esau, that's the Edomites, will be cut off by slaughter. Why such strong words? Why judgment? Well, because of verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob. That's the Israelite. Shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So when he says Jacob there, he's referring to the Israelites, the sons, the seed of Jacob. And though they imperfectly followed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though God was disciplining them at this moment, they were in exile in Babylon. They were still God's people. God's chastised people. On the other hand, the Edomites, who were the descendants of Esau, remember Esau and Jacob were twin brothers, Genesis 25. For generations, they had rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So their violence against Jacob, the Israelites, is not violence against strangers. It's violence against brothers. But more than that, their violence wasn't only against people. Their violence was against God's people. They took advantage of them. They kicked a man when he was down. They looted them. Like the looting after the floods in in. Like the looting that happens when a pick-and-pay truck falls over. They looted them. They exploited them. They attacked them. They handed them over to the Babylonians for slaughter or slavery. And God says, verse 10, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So what's the principle here? The principle is God not only opposes the proud. God opposes those who oppose his people. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, you remember Saul, who later became Paul, Saul had been persecuting the Christian church, putting Christians into jail, persecuting them. And Jesus appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road. And you remember, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? No. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies the church with himself. He's the head and we the body. When you persecute the church, when you persecute God's people, you are persecuting God. I've been a pastor in this church for almost 30 years. if at some stage never happened, If at some stage this church had dealt with me unfairly or unjustly, and it certainly didn't happen. This church has been so gracious to me. But if they had, I would have walked away quietly. No fight, no drama. I've seen pastors do the opposite. You don't do that. You walk away quietly. The church, imperfect as it may be, is still the body of Christ. And you never fight the body of Christ. You never fight your mother. Do you? You may succeed against the church, and some pastors have. Sometimes in the newspapers. But you will not succeed against the God of the church. Perhaps there's a Christian in your in your extended family, in your class, in your office, who's socially awkward. Some of us are. And uh, perhaps has little EQ. Perhaps a bit weirdo. Don't join with others in making jokes. Don't belittle them. Defend him. Stand by him. Awkward as he is. Theologically weird as he may be, he's part of the people of God. Don't oppose God's people. When you oppose God's people, you oppose God. Be warned. There we have Edom's sins. Let's have a look at God's judgment. You still with me? Amen? Anybody out there? Yes, amen. Good, wonderful. You're allowed to say amen. Amen. All right, let's have a look at God's judgment. So we've seen the sins. Now let's have a look at God's judgment, verse 15. Let me read again. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. Irony is when you say something or do something that means the exact opposite. So when it's a terrible, horrible day, it's wet, it's cold, it's miserable, and you walk into the office and you say, what a beautiful day. Everybody knows that is irony. You actually mean the exact opposite. This verse tells us that God often punishes people through irony. God often punishes people by means of their own sin. As you have done, it shall be done to you. It's a theme that runs in the Bible, both negatively and positively. This morning we're looking at, at it negatively. David in Psalm 9 says, In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. Proverbs 26:27 says, He who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. We see it in Pharaoh. Think of Pharaoh the Exodus. Exodus chapter 1, what does Pharaoh want to do? He wants to kill the Israelites. So he tells the midwives, you are to kill the firstborn sons, in fact, all the males, when they are born. And thankfully, the midwives said no. He then said, take all the male sons, the firstborn as well, and drown them. Kill them. Pharaoh was the prehistoric Hitler. Genocide. Thankfully, it didn't happen. But when you come to the tenth plague, God sends a messenger. God sends ten messages to Pharaoh. He doesn't listen. The tenth plague, what happens? His firstborn son dies. And then Pharaoh and his army are drowned in water in the Red Sea. Retributive irony. You reap what you sow. Absalom, David's son, he attempted a military coup against his own father. Imagine that. He took great pride in his appearance, in his looks, and especially his hair, his long hair, his long locks. He only cut it once a year. I do it a a little bit more often. He took great pride in his appearance and his long hair, his long locks. And ironically, you know how he died. He was fleeing his father's army. He was on a horse or a donkey. He was fleeing and his locks were flying. And they got caught in the branches of a thorn bush. And he was hung by his locks. Retributive irony. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then murdered her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Do you know that later in time, some of King David's wives were abused? And two of his sons were killed by the sword. You reap what you sow. Back to Pharaoh. I only discovered this in my reading a couple of months ago. Pharaoh claimed to be God. His titles, his Egyptian titles, included Savior of Egypt, Lord of the Living, Universal God, God of Heaven and Earth. Those were his titles. The Sun God. He claimed to be the divine judge after death. Now listen to this. In Egyptian religion, they believed that when a person died... The heart after death would confess anything wrong it had done, its sins and its evils, and there would be judgment. However, Pharaoh, who was the sun god, could rescue them, could save them. And they believed that when you took a stone in the shape of a beetle and placed that stone on the corpse when it was buried, that stone... Would protect your heart. It would safeguard your heart. It would harden your heart so that your sins would not be exposed. So if you had that beetle, that stone beetle on your chest, It was a sign, a symbol of Pharaoh, the God, the divine being, the sun God, and he would protect your heart. He would harden your heart so that your sins would not come out. The beans wouldn't be spilled. Well, of course, as we know, retributive justice. He reaped what he sowed because Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And then God hardened Pharaoh's hearts. And in that he died and was judged. A watery death. You reap what you sow. And so it was with Edom. So they gloated over Israel's suffering and defeat. They rejoiced over Israel's misfortune. They were accomplices in the slaughter, the slavery. And God says, verse 15, As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your head. And verse 7 we read, Obadiah is speaking about the future. He says, though you saw, no, that's verse 4, verse 7, all your allies, who are the Babylonians, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread, that's allies, have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. And in 553 B.C., the Babylonians, their, their brother-in-arms, their friend, their allies, deceived them. A trap. Turned on them, destroyed them. Retributive justice, you reap what you sow. Forgive me, but how ironic that Robert Mugabe ruled Zimbabwe with an iron fist for 37 years and then spent the last two years of his life in total humiliation. Not just total humiliation, total international humiliation. Remember, he was ousted in a peaceful coup, but a coup nonetheless at the barrel of a gun by his own hand-picked 2IC. Et tu Brutus. Question for us. Do you want to reap? I mean, this is a heavy question. Do you want to reap what you've sown? Think about that. The answer is you will. Because that is the very grain of the universe. It's the grain of the universe. You reap what you sow. You cannot fight against the law of gravity. You may not like it. You may not believe in it. But you cannot fight against the law of gravity. That's the grain of the universe. There's only one escape. Only one. No other escape. And that's grace. The grace from the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. It's the only escape. Two comments before we look at our last principle. Number one, verse 15 tells us, notice there, that the day of the Lord will be a day of judgment. But a judgment of all nations. Not just Edom. But surely you say, how could God judge a nation? How could he judge a person who has no access to the Bible, to his law, to the Ten Commandments, to the words of Jesus? How can he judge people? How can he judge all nations who have no knowledge of God? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 2 that God will judge all of us according to the light we have received. Some of us have received the word of God. Some of us have received the gospel, Jesus. Others of us haven't. But you will be judged according to the light you have received, which is your conscience. Your conscience is God-given. You may not believe in God, but he's given you a conscience. Everybody knows right from wrong. Not exactly the same details, but we all know right from wrong. We all know that another human being is made in the image of God. We all have a conscience. And so those nations, those people will be judged according to their conscience. There's no culture on earth, I'm really quoting C.S. Lewis, no culture on earth that says disrespect for your elders is good. Of course not. It's your conscience. There's no culture on earth that says kindness to your family is bad. Of course not. We have a conscience. We know right from wrong. There's no culture on the planet that says being a traitor to your family, to your people is good. We have a conscience. We're made in the image of God and therefore we are accountable to Him. Whether we believe in Him or not. Interesting, you can deny God and many people do, but even those people can't deny their conscience. It will haunt you. It's called the revenge of the conscience, by the way. All right. Second point. Sorry, not the last point. Second, second comment before the last point. We'll get there. You still with me? Amen. Amen. Second comment. Every single person who is in hell has chosen to be in hell. They're not there by mistake. They're not there because God's unfair or unjust. They're not there because someone slipped through the cracks. No, every person in hell has chosen to be in hell. If your whole life you have said to God in one way or the other, I don't need you, I don't want want you, get out, stay out, leave me alone. If you've been saying that to God all your life, on judgment day God will say to you, that's what you want. I respect your wishes and that's what you get for all eternity. Everyone in hell has chosen to be in hell. And you know how some people say, well, I don't mind because my friends will be in hell. (laughs) Your friends may very well be in hell, but there won't be friendship. Because friendship is a gift of God. And there won't be laughter, because laughter is a good gift from God. And you won't have a nice chat drinking a beer, because those are gifts from God. You will be excluded from God and his love and his kindness and his friendship. And laughter and joy. It's terrifying, and it should be terrifying. All right, let's have a look. Last point, the big picture. We looked at Edom's sins. We looked at God's judgment. Let's have a look at the big picture, which is the good news. So stay with me. Verse 17. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. That's escaped the judgment. And it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. Judgment. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. To so those who have chosen to be wicked, the Edomites, will face God's judgment. The house of Esau will be stubbled. There will be no survivors. But in Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. The house of Jacob shall possess her inheritance. Verse 20. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as the Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Seraphat shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So Israel was God's chosen people, yet for generations Israel had rebelled against God. They had sought after other gods, other lovers. You can read it in Kings and Chronicles. So God in discipline of his children sent them into exile in Babylon. It was God's Judgment. It was God's discipline. And yet, thankfully, God wasn't done with them yet. God had not finished with them yet. So Obadiah's prophecy is not only words of judgment for Edom, but also words of hope and salvation for Israel. They are in exile. He is saying, You will return. The exile shall return. The exile shall be restored. The exile shall shall again go up to Mount Zion. In fact, it's a complete reversal against Edom were first and Israel was last. And then there's a reversal, and Israel is first and Edom is last, just as Jesus said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. But what we see here about Obadiah's God, he's the God of history, he's the God of space and time, he's the God of all nations. The media tell us about the powers of America, of China, of nuclear Russia. They tell us about the powers of NATO and BRICS and ICC and G7 and G20 and God bless them all. Yet it's all temporary. Those powers are temporary. they partial. they derived. All human authority, governments, politics, businesses, corporate... The home, the church, is short-term. It's dependent, not independent. The ultimate authority belongs to God. And he will have the final say, and he will have the final word. And that is where our security is in him. And so we bow and we worship to this God. Let me close, really close. Let me give you the big picture. Stay with me. The conflict between Edom and Israel didn't start in 580 BC, as I've said. Israel were the children of Jacob. Edom were the children of Esau. That sibling rivalry, you remember, started in Genesis 25. The twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. There's a history of hate between these two nations. For instance, when Israel traveled in the Exodus through the wilderness, trying to cross into the promised land, Eden prevented them, prohibited them from crossing over their land. We see that rivalry in Psalm 137, which is a Jewish psalm written in Babylon when they were in exile. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion remember O oh Lord against the Edomites who cried to tear it down tear it down in Jerusalem but ultimately it's not a sibling conflict it's not a national conflict it's actually a spiritual conflict which goes back to Genesis 3 verse 15. you remember Genesis 3 verse 15 God said to the serpent I will put enmity that's conflict between you and the woman and Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the Bible, including the book of Obadiah, is an account of the conflict between two seeds. The seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. Spiritual conflict. And that conflict is seen in the strife between Cain and Abel. It's seen in the strife between Pharaoh and Moses. It's seen in the strife between Israel and the Canaanites, Israel and the Edomites. The conflict is seen in Matthew 2, when King Herod learned of the birth of Jesus. You remember, he immediately tried to kill him. Remember how he killed all the male children in Bethlehem, two years and under, hoping that Jesus was amongst them. Do you know the ethnic background of King Herod? King Herod was an Edomite. So once again, the son of Esau tries to kill the son of Judah, but fails. Finally, the seed of the serpent, in great victory, tries to crucify the seed of the woman, and does so. But ironically, his death was his victory. His death was our victory. In his death, he conquered sin and death and Satan and the seed of Satan. So, my dear friends, there is a spiritual conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. And we're in the midst of that conflict. But our hope, our security, our safety is not found in the kingdoms of this world. It's not found in China or America or whatever your politics are. It's not found in offshore investments. No, your ultimate security and safety is found in the God of Obadiah. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who rescues people like us. Notice verse 21. It talks about saviors, but the key saviour was, of course, Jesus. And Jesus went on to Mount Zion. Do you know where they crucified him? On Mount Zion. Jerusalem. Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So, the great question as we close it's quite a simple question. Whose side are you on? (laughs) Whose side are you on? And only you can answer that. It's between you and God. Whose side are you on? There are no other sides. There's the seed of Satan or the seed of the woman. Whose side are you on? Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. You tell God where you are. Father, we pray that you will forgive us when we have not lived in the light of eternity. Forgive us that we may have thought that we would never die. Forgive us, Lord, when we have tried to find our security and safety in the things of this world that are so temporary. There may be someone here this morning who for the first time wants to say, Oh, God. I don't want to go to that place. Will you rescue me? I'm flawed, I'm broken, but will you rescue me? And we thank you, Lord, that because of your grace, there was even a remnant of Edom who trusted in God. And so there's hope for all of us. Help us to take that step. Father, go with us into this week. Help us, as I pray, to live in the light of eternity, to think of these things. Help us to love you more. Help us to love our neighbor. Use us this week, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.